Corinthians 12. I mentioned in Sunday's teaching that just kind of felt led to get into a little bit of the gifts of the Spirit, the manifestation of the Spirit, and we will see a number of things that maybe we've never thought about before, but in 1 Corinthians 12, I'd like to read the first three verses. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles carried away into these dumb idols, even as you were led. Before I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord but by the Holy Ghost. So the the title of the teaching, we're calling it Empowered by the Spirit. Empowered by the Spirit. But let's have a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful to be able to have this opportunity to look into the Scriptures. We pray that you open our hearts and illuminate our minds as we find out what the Word says about some of these ministries of the Holy Spirit. These things we pray for in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. On a number of occasions, I've had conversations with people about the manifestations of the Holy Spirit and the the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Uh, One time I even had a gentleman tell me that he wouldn't believe in anything other than what is written in Mark 16. Is that, what does that sound I'm here? Okay. In Mark 16, it talks about these signs shall follow them that believe. And in my name, they shall cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. Now, when I was talking with someone one time, they told me they would only believe in these specific signs. And I then told them, I said, well, if if this is as far as your faith in God goes, then you'll struggle with a lot of what you read in the book of Acts, because there are a number of things that happen in the book of Acts that aren't mentioned here in Mark 16, verses 17 and 18. You say things like what? Well, number one, dreams and visions. They aren't mentioned here in the final verses. Angelic appearances. They're not mentioned also in these final verses. And then at the same time, uh, in the book of Acts, you have occasionally miracles of judgment. So let's not forget that when Ananias and Sapphire lied to the Holy Ghost, to Peter, that they fell over dead. So whenever we talk about the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the ministry of God, let's never forget that God operates outside of our little box and our little thinking. Oftentimes we have a tendency to believe that if we don't believe it and we don't understand it, that God doesn't do it. And that's not necessarily the case. Now, over here in 1 Corinthians 12, you have a number of these manifestations that are mentioned Here in verses 6, 7, and 8, and 9, and even in 10. But Paul is teaching us that there are supernatural things that occur 
And sometimes that natural mind can't understand them. About 30 years ago, I was in Colorado at the International uh, Conference for some Iranian people, an underground church out of the Middle East. And I was listening to all of these people. And they were telling testimonies of how they came to know the Lord in different cities of Iran. One person was from Mashhad, another person Tehran, then all these other places. And one by one, they're telling stories of visions they had of Jesus. Now, I knew that in listening to these folks, they were all the fruit of a gentleman named William McElwee Miller. I had read his autobiography and he died the year that I went to that conference. And when he died, he was over 100. And so all of these people were the fruit of his ministry that began back in 1919 and continued all the way up into the late 60s. Their parents and grandparents were some of his first converts. Now, he had gone to a, uh, a seminary over in New Jersey called Princeton Theological Seminary. And this was one of those Presbyterian schools that did not believe that God did supernatural things today. They did not believe in miracles today. They did not believe in any of that. But when this man left America and got on the ship and made his way to Iran and started witnessing to people and came in contact with folks who were having visions of Jesus, it had caused him to change his entire belief system. It's one thing to sit in a classroom and have people talk to you about the Bible and about God and about evangelism. It's another thing to go into a country where people worship the devil and where people are involved with foreign religions. And then you actually have to come in contact with people who have come to know the Lord apart from somebody ever preaching to them. And this is what I found has been so frustrating for missionaries on the field. Uh, they're out there trying to preach a God that they don't even believe is supernatural. I think it's a waste of time. And that's why we've had so many missionaries abroad that spent 40 years in a country, never even seen a convert. 30 years in a country, only seen maybe three people come to know the Lord. Uh, you have to have a supernatural basis for the ministry that you do in order for it to be fruitful and effective. Otherwise, what's the point of prayer? See, What's the point of prayer? Now, let's go to Genesis chapter 2, and I want to show you a couple of principles here. Genesis 2, and let's look at verse number 7. Genesis 2, verse 7. It says, and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. So notice verse seven, without the breath of life, man was just a body. He was just a, uh, we could say a corpse. It was lifeless. But the moment that the breath of God moved into this body, then all of a sudden there's animation and there's life. Now, no one had to teach Adam how to speak. He, he just knew that when the breath of God came into him. No one had to teach Adam how to name all the different animals. He knew it instinctively. And nobody had to teach Adam about the presence of God. 
He learned that from God walking through the garden. And he certainly didn't have to have anybody teach him about God being the creator of all things. All of that was inside him because of the breath of God that is within him. So for every human being on this planet, inside of that person, there are just certain traits and certain qualities that you will find no matter where you go on the planet. I don't care if you go into the jungles of South America or the jungles of Myanmar, you're going to find that everybody knows you're not supposed to commit adultery. Everybody knows stealing is wrong. Everybody knows you're not supposed to lie. So the the first Adam being created here had the breath of God inside of him. But go to 1 Corinthians now, verse 15. I want you to see about the second Adam or the last Adam, or we call him Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15. Notice verse number 45. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. The first Adam was created by God and the breath of God entered him. The second Adam was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And what made him different is that he was a life giving spirit. Adam didn't give life to anybody. But yet we know from from the word of God here that Jesus gives life. And this is why the Bible talks about eternal life, talks about being alienated from the life of God and so on and so forth. Well, when Jesus departed planet Earth after he was crucified and raised from the dead, he went to heaven. But having laid down that natural body, he picked up a new body, which is called the body of Christ. The body of Christ then has become the corpus or the body in which the Lord manifests himself now. So Jesus isn't here physically except through the church, but he is here spiritually in our hearts. He's at the right hand of the father, but figuratively he's in our hearts by faith. And now that the church is the body of Christ, we have to understand that the spirit of God is in us the same way the breath of God was in that first Adam. Now, in Hebrew, in Arabic and in Aramaic, the word for spirit, wind, soul and breath is the same word. It's the same word. And when you come over into the Greek, the word for wind, spirit, soul, it's the same word. So when we talk about the spirit of God at work and ministering in the body of Christ, we're talking about the spirit of God being the breath of God in the second Adam, the same way God created the first Adam and put the breath of God in him. There are certain things as a Christian that we learn from God that doesn't have anything to do with our natural minds. There are some things that come, some things that occur, activities of the Holy Spirit that manifest that has nothing to do with natural talent, natural gifts, and natural abilities. It's a spiritual thing. So in 1 Corinthians 12 then, notice verse number 1. It says now concerning spiritual. Now in the KJV, the word gifts are uh, in parentheses because the word gifts 
is not in the original Greek text, but the translators wanting to help people with their understanding, they added that because later on in verse 4, you have the word gifts, and then later on you run into it again. So now concerning spirituals, and it's plural, so things related to or concerning the Holy Spirit. Paul has talked about a number of different topics in this particular book. He's talked about what it means to uh, build a church that's established with Christ as the foundation. He's talked about people not believing that he was an apostle. He's talked about uh, the proper understanding of uh, relationships with people in the church. He's talked about marriage. He even dealt with the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11. Now he comes to a topic that they've been wanting to know about, and that's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And and I've never gone anywhere except I found people want to know more and more about how the Spirit of God moves and, and what causes that. So concerning spiritual things, I don't want you to be ignorant because there were plenty of people that didn't know about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, what does it mean to talk about things related to the Holy Spirit, to the Holy Ghost? Let's go to the last book of the New Testament, book of Revelation, and let's go to chapter number one, and I want to read a verse of scripture to you, verse 10. John is a prisoner because of his testimony of Jesus Christ. But notice in Revelation 1 verse 10, he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. In the spirit. What does that mean? In the spirit. I mean, somehow or another, God had him in a particular spiritual realm where he was able to hear and he was able to see things that he would not have been able to see and hear had he not been in the spirit. God has a world that is beyond your natural eye. And if he could open up our eyes to behold spiritual things, we'd know that each one of us has an angel. Now, the scripture tells us that the angel of the Lord encamps around those that fear him. How many of you love the Lord and fear the Lord? See, all of us. We know that the scripture says in the Gospels, this is Jesus talking about children saying that their angel stands before the face of God. So we know that kids have an angel. There's nothing in the Bible leads me to believe that you lose them when you become an adult. But I do know that God has angelic help and assistance for us. And if he opened our eyes, we'd see them. But if he gave you a glimpse into the spirit realm, you'd not only see angels, you'd see demons. You'd see demonic entities that influence people, that govern people that control people, that manipulate people. But regardless, you still have power over them. That's what the scripture said. In my name, you'll cast out devils. So in this particular book here, John was in the spirit and he saw and heard things. Now maybe you've had experiences like that and maybe you didn't quite know what was taking place. I've seen where people thought they were daydreaming and God was trying to get their attention where people have gone to sleep at night and had dreams and visions, and God was trying to speak to them, but they didn't even really understand that it was God. Turn to 2 Kings chapter 3, and I will show you now sometimes what causes 
or increases a manifestation of the Spirit of God or the presence of God. Second Kings chapter 3, Elisha has to make a decision because Jehoshaphat the king needs an answer. And so in verse 13, Elisha said to the king of Israel, what have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother. And the king of Israel said, no, for the Lord hath called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. And Elisha said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, surely were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. I wouldn't even look towards you or see you. But now bring me a minstrel. That's a musician. And it came to pass when the minstrel played that the hand of the Lord came upon him. So notice now the the influence of music. Uh, The right kind of music certainly can spur the activity and the manifestation of God in a church. The wrong kind of music in life in general, and certainly in a church particularly, can destroy a whole lot of what God wants to do. If, if you want to see confusion in a church, look at some of these meetings where they're doing the whole Christian rock and roll thing, and you see other confusion all over the place. But you find a place where Uh, People sing songs that glorify him, that magnify the blood, that deal with the cross, that lift up Jesus so that he can be worshipped. And you'll find that the spirit of God can come in a greater manifestation. There is a presence in a worshipful church that is different than anything you ever find in a casino in Las Vegas or in Iowa. Presence is totally different. And once you come to understand what moves the spirit of God in your life, then just like Elisha, you'll want that kind of a musician and that kind of person to play. And, and for, for us, I know in plenty, plenty of occasions in my own life, if, if there's going to be a prophecy, there's going to be tongues and interpretation, then it's important that there's music that makes it possible for the Spirit of God to be there in full manifestation. If I go into a Lutheran church, a Presbyterian church, a Methodist church, most Baptist churches and things like that, it is rare that I'm even expecting the presence of God. Simply because all it's going to be is probably a few hymns are going to be sung or or something like that. And most of the people are going to sing it without even really believing in the God that they're singing to. However, if 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 there's a worshipful spirit and the people in those churches, just like in any other kind of church, if their heart is flooded with an affection for God, the spirit of God can move there, too. Yeah, he can move there, too. What God is looking for are people that are sincere, people that are devoted, and people that understand him. How do we allow the Spirit of God to use us? We yield to him. We yield to him. Now let's go back to 1 Corinthians 12 and verse number 1. He says, concerning spiritual gifts, I would not have you ignorant. That tells the reader that it is possible to be ignorant about spiritual gifts. That this is a topic... 
the ministry of the Holy Spirit that a lot of people don't know much about. If if I were to ask some of you in here, how many of you could uh, overhaul an engine? There's probably a handful of you in here that could. And then others that would wonder, where would you even begin? But then if we said to some of you in here, uh, do you know how to make homemade bread? Then there'd be some of you in here that know exactly what to do. And then there'd be others of you in here wondering what in the world you're talking about. And if, if somebody came along and said something along the line about could you take a computer kit and put it all together, make it work. There might be somebody in here that can do that. Then there'd be other people who wouldn't know anything about it. Well, not knowing about something doesn't necessarily mean the knowledge isn't available. And this is what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. I don't want you ignorant concerning things related to the Holy Spirit. There are a lot of people that are ignorant, but I don't want you to be ignorant. And the only way to counter ignorance is with wisdom. And the only way you can do that, somebody who knows how to teach the subject has to open up their book, their heart, their mind, their experiences and explain it. And that's what Paul is doing. Because if you didn't know how to change a tire on a car, would you want to be the one trying to explain to somebody how to fix a flat? No, you'd be there a long time. And if, if, if you didn't understand calculus very well, you probably wouldn't want somebody who knows less than you trying to explain to you how to understand some of the formulations that are connected with it. But Paul here, in dealing with so many different issues, he has shown that when it comes to the things of God, he's got like a universal knowledge. And he has the ability to teach a variety of different subjects. So he says in verse 2, you were Gentiles. That's people without a covenant. People who did not have a covenant with God, pagan at one time, and you worshiped dumb idols. What's a dumb idol? A statue with eyes and ears and hands and legs, but can't hear, see, touch or walk. That's what he said. Now, the ancient Greeks, as you know, from looking at the Acropolis in Athens, you know, the ancient Greeks loved idols and altars and statues. And they would come with sacrifices, sometimes vegetable bowls, meat bowls, just like the Hindus do today and other religions. They come with those bowls and set them before their statues. And they believe that a spirit comes into that statue and might speak to them. Or if you've in ancient history, they talk about the oracles of Delphi, the oracle of Apollo. And these were people who were priests and priestesses or prophets and prophetesses. And if you went to these particular places and paid some money, then they would prophesy to you about whether or not you should go to war. Now, Alexander the Great, he, he oftentimes resorted to these kind of people when determining where he should go next. Well, because Paul says you were Gentiles carried away to these dumb idols. He's saying you're not that now. See, you're born again, you're saved, you're Christian. You've been brought out of sin, out of darkness, into the light. You were led by these dumb idols. And you lived your life in accordance with the traditions that were given to you by people who taught the masses 
to follow these idols. Now we're Christians, so we, we need to know that we, we don't do the statue thing. And, and, and we're not into trinkets and fetishes looking for some kind of power. You don't need an amulet or, or something like that in order to have a, a strong relationship with God. So Paul is telling them, coming out of all of these Greco-Roman traditions and beliefs, he says, I'm giving you to understand that nobody can say Jesus is God or Jesus is Lord unless the Spirit of God is on them, speaking through them. In, in ancient times, you had spirits that would speak through people and would say all kinds of things. Now, you know that's the truth because in Acts chapter 16, it tells you about the lady who had the spirit of divination and followed behind Paul, and, and then Paul cast the devil out of her. So believe me when I tell you, people can be filled with evil. If somebody goes to see a tarot card reader, if someone pulls out a Ouija board, if someone goes to a crystal ball gazer or some medium that's going to try to convey messages from the other side to people today, I don't have any doubt there will be a spirit speaking through these people. It's not going to be God. And it may not necessarily be accurate. It may be accurate if it's a familiar spirit, familiar with the situation, familiar with that person. But certainly it's demonic. But he's, he's saying here that the, the spirit of God is going to lead people to know Jesus is Lord. He's master. He's savior. The one thing the devil is not going to try to do. He can't live godly, so he's not going to lead you to live godly. The devil doesn't acknowledge the sovereignty and the power of God, so he's not going to go out of his way to lead you to do that. As a Christian, Paul says, I'm giving my understanding to you, and I want you to know about these things. So spiritual things, again, related to spiritual things. The Bible says in Galatians if we live in the spirit, we'll walk in the spirit. Then it says the works of the flesh that are manifest. Then it starts naming all these things, witchcraft, hatred, and so on. And then he goes on to describe the fruit of the spirit. To the degree that you allow the fruit of the spirit to manifest in your life, you're walking in the spirit. So you have to pass up opportunities to be offended. You understand that? Opportunities to be offended. When you have an opportunity to be angry with someone, when you allow the Spirit of God to restrain your tongue so that you don't give them a piece of your mind, that's, that's being led by the Spirit. That's walking in the Spirit. When you pass up an opportunity to go off on somebody because you're, you got a chip on your shoulder and today just happens to be a bad day, that, that's a walk in the Spirit. When you control Allow the Spirit of God to control that, that, that kind of behavior. When you choose to believe, fruit is a man, faith is a, is a fruit. When you choose to believe rather than doubt, then you're allowing God to live through you. Because God wants you to understand that your life is to be a fruit-bearing uh, entity so that other people can see the fruit manifested in your life. And that's all a part of being led by the Spirit, walking in the Spirit. These are things concerning the Holy Spirit. 
So he says in 1 Corinthians 12, verse number four, then there are diversities of gifts, different kinds of gifts. I've never met anybody didn't like gifts. Everybody likes to receive gifts. That's why people get so happy at Christmas time. The only one that may not be so happy about gifts, the one who's got to buy a whole lot of them. But but most people like to receive them. What is a gift? It is something that is given to you, but it has to be received, has to be received. If someone tries to give you something and then you say, I don't want it. You can't say there isn't a gift that has been extended to you. You just simply saying you don't want it. And when the Lord makes available to Christians gifts and then believers say, well, I don't believe those are for today. What they're saying to God is I don't want them. Well, just because you don't want them, that don't mean I don't want them. And just because you're not interested in them, certainly it's not going to mean I'm not interested in them at all. It just simply means I'm going to benefit from them and you're not. Because if you if you bring me a, a package and in that package you say, Daryl, there are five one hundred dollar bills in this gift box right here. And 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 there are five boxes that are out here and say you say that to me and you say that to four other people. And then the four other people say, well, uh, I know that there was a time when somebody was giving out gift boxes that had five hundred five hundred dollar bills in it. But I don't believe people do that today. Well, while they're saying they don't believe people do that today, I'm ripping through the boxes and I'm pulling out all the money and I'm grabbing all the cash and I'm holding on to all of it. And I'm going to the store and I'm going to spend it while they're saying they don't believe people are doing that today. And that's exactly how it is with this. Throughout the body of Christ, you have large segments of the church who say with the death of the last apostle, God stopped moving like this. But my question would be, what does the death of the last apostle have to do with the ministry of the Holy Spirit? See, and then the other thing I would ask with all the different disciples, hundreds, thousands of people that heard Jesus minister in his life. Why would the death of the last apostle cause all of them believers who are still alive to stop believing in this because the last apostle died? Even if your favorite preacher passed away, it doesn't matter. Uh, at that Princeton Theological Seminary that I mentioned earlier, there was a famous professor named B.B. Warfield, and he wrote a book called Counterfeit Miracles, Counterfeit Miracles, in which for over three or four hundred pages, he just talked about how anything connected with God, having people speaking in tongues or anybody being healed and all of that, that that is all bunk and it is rubbish. But yet all over, all around the world, there were testimony after testimony of missionaries going and preaching and people being healed and people having dreams and visions and wonderful things happening here in America. Now, some 20, 25 years ago, John MacArthur in California wrote a book called Charismatic Chaos. And that book basically just tried to destroy any kind of faith that people had in trusting and believing that God could do supernatural things. But here's what we need to know. On his tract of Calvinism, where God saves a few people to go to heaven, the rest go to hell, he doesn't believe in that. He'll never see that happen. But all the while he's preaching that and writing about that, God's doing wonderful things in mass crusades of 100,000, 200,000 people gathered together in open fields, thousands being saved, blind eyes being opened. So just because you don't believe in it, that doesn't mean it doesn't happen. 
It doesn't mean you won't see it likely. See, you won't see it. And if you if you run with the kind of people that that are opposed uh, to the to the spirit of God and the move of God, then you, you're going to limit yourself as far as what God wants to do. So verse four, speaking of diversities of gifts, we learn then that there's more than one. And then verse five, differences of administrations. These things are handled differently. So the administration of the church here is different than the administration of my church in Red Cloud. The, the church in Red Cloud is, has a totally different structure and governing structure than the church in Kansas. You, you do understand that Nebraska has a unicameral system in the state legislature. But you don't have a whole lot of other states that have that. Different administrations. Uh, mom, moms and dads govern their children and their families in different ways. Every family does not operate the same because every mom and dad don't hold the same beliefs as far as how to raise their kids, what their limits are, what to let them do. Every family has different administrations. I've seen some families don't believe in chores for their kids. Zero, none. But then I've seen other families where the kids all have chores. I've seen families where uh, the moms and dads pay the kids a uh, weekly stipend or allowance. But then I've seen other moms and dads, they don't get no allowance around here. They get free room and board. so They're not getting anything. See, So everybody administrates in a different way. And the Holy Spirit will work through you in a way that's different than he works through me, but he'll work through anybody who's willing to let him. Male or female, rich or poor, single or married, with kids, without kids, big or skinny, bald or full of hair, skinny or brawny like pastor. See, he'll, he'll work through anybody. Diversities of gifts, differences of administrations. Verse six, diversities of operations. So how he uses you may be different than how he uses other people. So let me give some illustrations on some of these differences then. Do you understand that there are some people, they become believers Once they become Christian, it just seems like their supernatural equipment goes into manifestation. They start seeing things. They start hearing things that they never saw or heard before they became a Christian. Now, by that, I mean, I've met people who told me that, you know, pastor, just a strange thing. Sometimes I'll have a dream about something happening before it happens. A day before it happens, a month before it happens, sometimes a year before it happens. And it's not like it just occurs every now and then. I mean, this this sometimes is routine. And then that might happen for a whole season. Three or four years that may happen, then it may stop. He's the one that administrates. He's the one that governs and he's the one that guides. Some people, when they pray. God has a tendency to lay burdens, specific burdens on their heart regarding certain people. And so they'll minister to those people once they get up off their knees and go visit them. 
You know, if you're praying and, and God puts it on your heart or he shows you that you should go visit someone and, and take them a bag of groceries or sit down, write a letter to somebody you hadn't talked to in a long time. You probably should yield to that impression if it keeps coming to you over and over again. Yeah, because God may very well be be trying to to use you and to put you in a position to be a blessing to someone. And the book of Acts is filled with these kind of illustrations. You say, where? Well, remember, Acts chapter two. All of them gathered together in one place. Suddenly, power of God fell. 120 people, men and women, filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in languages they'd never heard before. Not, not a few of them, not some of them, not many of them, not most of them. All of them. That's what happened. Every single one of them. The Spirit of God fell. Then in chapter 8, Philip goes to Samaria. He's preaching. While that man of God is preaching, folks are getting saved. He's casted out devils, but there weren't anybody getting prayed through to the Holy Spirit. So Peter and John heard about the revival in Samaria. The apostles said, get down there quick. Get down there quick. They went down there, laid hands on people. People started receiving the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 10. Peter is standing in the house of a soldier telling the story of Jesus. And as he tells the story, the spirit of God falls on everybody in the house. Cornelius, his family and his friends, they all began to speak with another language and prophesy. Chapter 19. Here is Paul entering into Ephesus. You have all of these people that are there. He's met these disciples and he said, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believe? They said, we don't even know what you're talking about. So he explained it to them. He said, how were you baptized? They said, John the Baptist baptism, that kind of formula. He said, oh, no, that'll never do. And so he said, no, you, you, you got to be baptized in your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So they went down in the water, came up. Paul was a Trinitarian, came down, down in the water, came up, hands laid on. They began to speak with other languages. I was in the book of Acts. Now, there are plenty of people that will say uh, those things don't happen today, but it just really doesn't matter because you, you run into people like me who, who do speak with tongues. Then you run into people like Sister Phyllis, who does speak with tongues, and hundreds of others full of the Holy Ghost in this way, and, and, and walk with God. And Paul, over and over in the book of Acts, is trying to tell people, have a passion, have a hunger. Ask God to do for you what he did for them. Well, they also had a whole lot of dreams and visions in the book of Acts. Yeah. Peter was in jail, an angel came and set him free. He went back and told everybody how the angel set him free. Let's not forget the fact that Paul had the vision on the road to Damascus, and then he went to Syria. In that house, as he prayed, he saw somebody coming to lay hands on him, and the Bible makes it very plain. Ananias had a vision and went to where Paul was, laid hands on him, said, God sent me to you. Yeah. That same story with Peter and Cornelius. Cornelius had a vision of an angel coming to him. He did. Peter was up on the rooftop, and while he was praying, he had a vision, and he saw Something it was amazing. And then Pete, Paul, towards the end of the book of Acts, says that he had an angel that stood by him that night on the ship that told him nobody was going to lose their life. Well, in Acts chapter four, the people prayed and the place was shaken. In chapter five, Peter's shadow brought healing to people 
that were ill. In chapter 8, Philip brought deliverance and healing to people. Peter saw somebody raised from the dead. Let's not forget that in chapter 14, Paul was preaching. He saw a crippled man and he saw faith in that man's face. He said, get up on your feet. The man jumped up, was instantly made whole. And in the last chapter of the book of Acts, Paul is stranded on an island and the people come to him and he had reached into a a place with sticks and a snake had fastened on his hand. The people looked for him to drop dead. He didn't drop dead. He was kept by the power of God and people started coming to him. He laid hands on him and healed everybody that came to him on the island. Now, anybody who says that the book of Acts was a book just for that day, the only thing I can say is the book of Acts is the model, the pattern, the paradigm for every day, every day. And every Christian should hunger and desire to be led by God and yielded to the Lord in this way. I can tell you this. It makes your Christian life much more exciting if you believe like this than if you don't. Because when you don't believe like this, then Christianity just becomes a matter of you having a holy book just like the Buddhists have. And just like the Muslims have, and just like the Hindus have, and just like the Native American Indians have. And whenever you sit down and you try to talk with them, they talk with you. Then you pull out your book, and it's, it's got black leather and gold letters on it. And then they pull out their book. It's got black leather and gold letters on it. And then everybody's looking at their black leather-bound books with the gold letters. And everybody's saying, this is the holy book. The other one's saying, no, mine is the holy book. Then you say, no, this is the holy book. And the only way anybody will ever know that this thing we believe is real is if our resurrected, ascended Savior manifests himself, manifests himself somehow. Now, how he does it doesn't make me much of a difference. That he does it, that makes all the difference in the world. Yeah. We, we have to have him in a, in a powerful way and in a strong way, and he does it with different manifestation. He operates differently through people, and nobody can control what he does. And this is what he's looking for. Christians, that when they pray, they'll be big enough in their faith to say, God, I want whatever it is that you want. Whatever it is that you want. If, if I was a Methodist, and I've got a bunch of Methodist preachers in my family, but if I was a Methodist preacher, I'd be reading John Wesley's sermons all the time. In fact, I'd I'd probably rather hear somebody get up and read one of John Wesley's sermons than have to listen to some of the ones that that I've heard. Because at least in John Wesley's sermons and even in his journals and diaries, he tells about the outdoor meetings he preached and people fell down and they were shaking and they were weeping and they were crying and they were pleading for God to save them. I think there'd be a whole lot of people that would be excited to see that again. Yeah, that'd be fun. If, If I was a Lutheran, I'd be asking somebody to pull out some of Martin Luther's old table talk messages and some of his sermons so I could read about what he preached during that time that led an entire group of people to call themselves Lutherans as they followed him in the proclamation of the word. Yeah, Martin Luther, he didn't mind praying for the sick. Didn't at all. He, he, he didn't, didn't have any problem with, with that at all. But, but you, you'll find today that uh, people don't 
always want to follow their founders. Yeah, they don't always go that way. You, you can study the writings of John Knox and you'll find he's the father of the Presbyterian Church over in England and here in America. But John Knox, they said when that man prayed that the queen over there was terrified of that man's prayers. And John Knox and his his band of men would get out and hold those outdoor meetings and they didn't care what anybody said. They'd preach to hundreds of folks and watch people falling and crying and weeping. When America had the first great awakening. New England states, you had Jonathan Edwards preaching messages like sinners in the hands of an angry God. People were grabbing the pews in front of them. People were crying because they were terrified of what he was saying. The idea that they might lose their lives and enter into hell because he had a part in that message where he talked about how that, that, that people that don't know God, they're like somebody that's walking across a web. And they're they're just wisps of of fire that are just going up. And at any moment, it could just cause those webs to dissolve in just a few seconds. Your life could disappear into those eternal flames. And those folks were so shocked and, and terrified by what he was saying that you had a whole great awakening where people were crying out to God. Yeah. When the second great awakening and the other revivals broke out, you had Peter Cartwright who was a great Methodist camp meeting preacher, probably one of the first camp meeting preachers that had folks that were out under the tent and they were falling out in the sawdust. They were throbbing and shaking. People were being filled with the spirit. And he was a Methodist. This was like in 1820, 1830, 1840, right on up into the 1860s. And he pioneered churches all over the place. Charles Finney? Charles Finney in his own diary tells about how God filled him with the Holy Spirit. I mean, this was long before there was Azusa. This was 70 years before there ever was an Azusa. He had been a lawyer, but God was dealing with his heart. And he said, after God saved him, he walked away from that practice and said, I'm no longer pleading the the causes and cases of men. I'm pleading the cases of God. And he walked out of that law practice and spent the next 55 years preaching the gospel all over the eastern part of America. And the people hated him because counties were going dry. Saloons were being closed. People were showing up with clubs and bats to fight him because this man had so much of God on him. He had people that would go into different towns before his revivals. They'd be there 30 days before he got there praying, asking God to open up the heavens and allow the spirit of God to fall in that place. And when he got there, that's exactly what happened because they prayed and because he believed. I think that uh, out here, if, if God's going to have any kind of move, he's going to have to have people that are hungry for him. People that are willing to submit to him. People that are willing to say, God, I'm an empty vessel. I'm open. I'm available. Fill me. Use me. Lead me. Whatever you have to do. If we don't pray like that, we'll never see the things that God wants to do with us. So, so that's our introduction to uh, some of these manifestations, and we'll get into them with a little more detail in the weeks ahead. But as you can see, and certainly as you can hear, all of these things are exciting, absolutely exciting. 
when Tiffany and I, uh, sometimes we'll, um, when we get in the car, we'll say something like this as we're getting ready to do a long drive. We'll say, let's start talking about all the supernatural things we've seen God do for us since we've been here in Nebraska and been married. And she'll mention something that we prayed about that we needed. Then she'll give the answer. Then I'll mention something. We'll go back and forth just talking about this. One story after another of people healed, people saved, people filled with the Holy Spirit, marriages put back together, lives changed, people who left sin and started walking with God and how the Lord turned everything around. Supernatural supply and provision when we needed things and we didn't have things and God touched somebody's heart or God did this or God did that. And once you start enumerating all of those things, I'm telling you, your faith expands because you realize your life has been a book of Acts. And I know mine has from beginning to now. It's just been one thing after another where God has demonstrated that he hasn't forsaken me. And if you think about your own life and you think about what I'm saying, you lay there in that bed tonight and you think about that and maybe get up and start writing a few of these things down. You'll see that the hand of God has been on you for a long time. And there's no reason for you to doubt. Doubt God. Take the limits off. Take the constraints off. Take God out of your box. And let God be who he wants to be in your life. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are ever so grateful that you have never forsaken your people. And as the bride of Christ, we know that your desire is for us to be led by you, used by you. So, Father, I pray that something we said this evening would give us all opportunities to meditate And I pray that you turn our lives upside down as we pursue you in a greater way in in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen, amen. Praise God, praise God.